would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John. 1 John, if you're not familiar where that is, it's one of the last books of the Bible. If you find Revelation and go left just a little bit, you'll eventually get to the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And today we're looking at 1st John chapter 2. Uh, if you're using the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you can find the scripture, uh, the page reference there in the bulletin for you. 1st John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, and I'll be reading down through verse 28. <coughs> This is John speaking. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not have, con- they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit be at work here in this very place, in this very moment, wherever we might be, that he would open our eyes, that we might see what you want us to see from your word and teach us what we need to know. But I pray, Father, that it would not simply be knowledge for our heads, but that you would indeed cause what we know from your word to be true in our lives and that our lives would be changed and be different because of the work of the Spirit through the word. So we pray for that to be taking place even now in this very moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Polycarp understood what it meant. To abide in his Savior. Polycarp was born around 70 AD in what is now known as Turkey. He was a disciple of the Apostle John, and it's said that he had uh, first contact with many of the disciples who walked and interacted with Jesus. Eventually, he was ordained as the Bishop of Smyrna, which is also located in modern day Turkey. As an older man, Uh, Well known for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he was hunted by Roman officials because of his strong faith. Initially, he fled to the countryside to get away, but eventually he was captured after being betrayed by one of his servants. He was arrested and he was led off to face judgment. And as he was led off, he was recorded as saying, the will of God be done. The first officials 
who interacted with Polycarp after his arrest, tried to get him to offer sacrifices to the pagan gods to, to prove his allegiance to the Caesar. Polycarp refused and eventually was led away to the arena to be tortured and then killed. Once he was in the arena, the proconsul said, Swear by the genius of Caesar, repent, say away with the atheists. That was the name for the Christians that the proconsul had. Because the Christians didn't worship all the gods of the Romans. They worshipped just one god. So they referred, he referred to them as the atheists. He said, away, uh, repent and say away with the atheists. But Polycarp, with a strong expression on his face, looked at the crowd of pagans in the arena who had gathered to celebrate his execution. And he waved his hand at everybody in the entire arena. And he said, away with the atheists. The proconsul pressed further, revile Christ, he said. And Polycarp, unmoved, said, For eighty and six years have I been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul pressed even further. Swear by the genius of Caesar, he said. Polycarp responded, If you... Vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as you say, and pretend that you are ignorant who I am. Listen plainly. I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn the doctrine of Christianity, fix a day and listen. The proconsul went on. I have wild beasts. I will deliver you to them unless you repent. I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you despise the beasts. Unless you repent. Polycarp responded, call for the wild beasts. For repentance from better to worse is not allowed us. But it is good to change from evil to righteousness. You threaten with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come. And in everlasting punishment. But why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. The crowd then attacked Polycarp. He was tied up and burned at the stake. And when that didn't kill him, a soldier was summoned who stabbed him to death. It said that as death was approaching Polycarp, he cried out, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. Could you do that? Could you endure? Could you persevere? Could you abide in your Savior like Polycarp? That's what John is telling us. That is the call for every Christian that we are to abide in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We may not be called to go through a persecution like Polycarp endured. In fact, by comparison, we can say that our lives are so much easier than the life that he had to go through. But whether living the Christian life is easy or hard for us, the call is the same. And John gives us that call. We are to abide in Christ. That's what John was telling his readers to do. Those who were in the same living in the same area that Polycarp would eventually serve over in the area of Turkey, who had had false teachers come into the church and who had led people away from faith. 
John was writing to these dear believers in Christ who were left, and he was calling on them to remain steadfast, to abide. What I want us to consider today is what does that mean? What does it mean to abide in our Savior? I want us to look and see what John says about what that means, what we are to do. The fact that not everybody will do it, but how we can. And then at the end, what happens when we abide to the end? So first of all, what is John calling us to do? Well, three times here in these verses that we've looked at, he gave us the same command. Three imperatives, three commands that he gave us. You can see it first in verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. You can see it again at the end of verse 27. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And again, the beginning of verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. Abide. That's the command. That's what he is calling on us as God's people to do. It's a a little Greek word, meno, which means to remain, to be steadfast, to be unmovable, to persist, to persevere. And John uses this word abide both as a noun and as a verb 11 times at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. It's one of the very central themes of his letter. He is writing to these people who were left after the false teachers had come in and racked dissension in the church and had led off people from the church. And John was writing to those that were left to encourage them, abide in your Savior. Persevere in the faith, he says. Now, in just a moment, we'll talk a little bit more about what that looks like, what it looks like to abide. But for right now, as we begin, recognize that this is John's command to his readers. This is God's command to all of God's people. Abide, be steadfast, persist and persevere regardless of the circumstances of your life. Regardless of the circumstances of your life, abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we look at how we can do that, I I want you to notice that John points out that not everybody's going to do it. That's how he begins in our section today. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all are not of us. Not all will abide. And Jesus, or excuse me, John tells us something about the timing of what he's thinking about and the timing of when he wrote this in verse 18. He says it is the last hour. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you were with us uh, a little over a year ago as we were studying another of John's writings, the book of Revelation, We talked then and looked then at how he used the words last days and last hours to refer to the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. In other words, we're living now in the last days and the last hours, just as the people that were receiving this letter for the first time were also in the last days and the last hour. He's not referring to literal days, but the time period leading up to Jesus' second coming. And notice that John tells us something about these people that 
left. In verse 19, they went out from us. In other words, this was a group of people who had been in the church. This was a group of people who have been a part of God's people there in that part of the world. They had gone out from us, he says, but they were not of us. Not only had they been a part of the church, part of the the group in the church, but they weren't genuine and true believers. They had made a profession that they believed in Christ, but there had been no true change of their hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit. They were not of us. And he goes on in verse 22, at the beginning of verse 22, to refer to them as liars. They claimed that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They claimed that Jesus was the Son of God, but they didn't really believe that. And he even goes so far as to call them antichrists. He's not talking about one specific person that was referenced in Revelation, but he's saying that anyone who would deny that Jesus is Lord and Savior is an antichrist. In other words, there are lots of antichrists. Notice John says something to us about what they believed in verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. They denied that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he was the one who had been promised from the Garden of Eden and described throughout the Old Testament. They had denied the Father and the Son, he says at the end of verse 22. Perhaps they had denied the Trinity. Or maybe he's simply saying that they had denied that Jesus was the true Son of God. They were denying the deity of Jesus Christ. But regardless, he says they were anti-Christs. They were against Jesus. They were against the Christ. They were against the Father. They were against the true Christian faith. John Stott reflecting on this group that left and the false teachers that went with them said that what they were teaching wasn't just defective, it was diabolical. It's not just defective to say Jesus is not the Christ. That's not just defective theology, that's diabolical. These verses and what John is describing took place in this church in the first century remind us that not all who profess faith in Christ in the church will abide and will persevere to the end. I think this is where our Westminster Confession of Faith's distinction about the visible and the invisible church is so helpful. The invisible church is all true believers, past and present and future throughout all of time. It's nothing that we can see at any given time because it is all of God's people, those who are in heaven and those who are living now around the world and those who will come who will be God's people. And the visible church is all those living today who make a profession of faith in Christ and their children. That we can see it as the visible church. And Jesus told us, That there will always be wheats and tares in the church. There will always be true believers and those who say that they believe but don't have their hearts changed by the gospel. It was true in the first century when John was writing this letter. It's been true every century since and it will be true until Jesus returns. And that reality helps us to wrestle with the reality of people that we know. People that we know who have been in the church and then who have walked away from the Christian faith and walked away from the church. Maybe they were never truly believers. 
outward signs of belief, but no true inward change by the work of the Spirit. But maybe they are true believers, but the Lord is taking them through a process of pruning and discipline before He brings them back to Himself and brings them back into the church. And when that is happening with our family and our friends, it can be particularly painful to watch, especially if we don't have a voice with them. But here's what we must remember, brothers and sisters in Christ. As long as our loved ones are away from the church, as long as they are still breathing, and as long as Jesus Christ has not returned, there is always hope. And the hope then inspires us to persist and to persevere in praying for them. Praying that the Lord would return them to Himself and to His people. Not everybody will abide. And some in the church that John was writing to might have been wondering, well, what about me? They left, but what about me? Am I going to abide? Am I going to make it to the end? And so John writes to encourage them and to empower them to keep on, to be steadfast and to abide. And notice that he gives them some ways for how they could do that. Now, as we begin to think about how we can do this, I want you to reflect on a question. Is the call to abide in Jesus something that we do or something that is done for us? Is the call to abide something that we believe or something that we do? And of course the answer is both. After all, look at what John says at the beginning of verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Let what you heard from the beginning, from that first moment when you heard the gospel of God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, that first moment when you embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, let that gospel truth of God's grace to you in Christ abide in your heart. Let the good news of the work of Jesus on your behalf abide in you. What John is saying is don't depart from the gospel. Don't leave God's grace. Don't give up on believing the truth of the gospel. And what is the gospel, brothers and sisters in Christ? It is not something that we do. It is something that is done for us. It is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus making propitiation for our sins, turning away God's wrath and paying our debt with God. And John is saying, as a command, let that gospel abide in you. Persevere, persist, be immovable in believing the truth of the gospel. Don't go around looking for some new truth. The latest fad or idea or some twist on the gospel of truth. That's what these false teachers were doing. John says, no, keep on believing what is true. The gospel that has been accomplished for you and given to you freely by faith. Now you can see that that's what John is saying another way when you look at verses 20 and 21. As he speaks in contrast to those that had left the church. And he's looking now at the people who were left. God's people, genuine believers in Christ. What does he say about them in verse 20? You have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. 
I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. If you are a believer in Christ, if you are one of God's people, if you are a Christian, then John says you've been anointed. What does it mean to be anointed? Well, in the Old Testament... Anointing took place on someone or something, often with oil, when it would be put on them, poured on them in order to mark them out for a special purpose. Think of Aaron and his sons being anointed for their work as priests. Think of David being anointed for his work as king of Israel. Jesus himself is called God's anointed as he came to do a very special work. He was set apart for that special purpose that he came for. And brothers and sisters in Christ... As, as one of God's dearly beloved, you have been anointed. You have been set apart for a special purpose of being God's person for all eternity. And, and notice what John tells us about the source of the anointing that we've received in verse 20. We've been anointed by the Holy One. When that's used in the Old Testament, it almost always refers to God Himself. In the New Testament, it's, it's used to often refer to Jesus. And when John uses that term Holy One in his writings, he uses it to refer to the Holy Spirit. He uses it to refer to Jesus. He uses it to refer, it to, refer to the Father. And the point that John is saying is that if you are a Christian, that you have been anointed and set apart for the special purpose of being God's child by God Himself. He has anointed you. That's not something that you did. It's something that was done for you by God Himself. It is a gift that is received, not a payment that is earned. Is the call to abide something that we do or something that is done to us? Well, it's something that is done to us. But notice, we're also told that it's something that we are involved in. That's why at the end of verse 27 and the beginning of verse 28, John calls on the people to abide in Jesus. Imperatives, commands. He's saying, don't just believe what is true. But also here is something for you to do for you to do abide in Jesus Christ persevere to the end hold on to your profession of faith in Christ don't turn back from it fight against your sin lean against your sin repent and turn away from your sin once again keep growing in your knowledge and your love of the Lord and your love and your service to one another Keep using the means of grace that God has given to us. His word and, and worship and the Lord's Supper and baptism and prayer and fellowship. Keep pushing back against the fear of this world. The fear that the devil would try to fill our hearts and minds with. Keep growing in Christian maturity and reforming your beliefs and practices according to the word of God. Keep doing all of the things that the Lord gives us and uses to shape and to mold us into the people that he wants us to be. Abide. Abide in Jesus Christ. This is what John is calling his readers to do and what God calls all of us to do. Abide to be steadfast and immovable in believing the gospel of God's grace to us through the cross and the resurrection of our Savior. Remembering that we are God's anointed ones and persisting and persevering in, in, in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and growing more and more like our Savior in our thoughts and words 
and actions. In other words, we believe what is true. We believe the indicative. We believe the fact of the gospel. And we do what we are called to do. We do the imperatives. We do the commands. It's very similar to something that Paul wrote in the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's the indicative. There's the fact. There is what we believe, that we have been saved by God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is not because of anything in us, so that none of us can boast. That's the gospel. That's the indicative. That's the fact that we believe. But he goes on. For we are God's, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's the imperative that we would walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is how we are to abide. We are to believe the gospel, to not stop believing God's grace to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And to fight and lean against our sin, to follow our Savior with our lives, and to grow more and more like Him. But I want you to notice as we finish that John wanted to fill his people with an incredible hope, knowing the challenges that they had to face in their lives. And so he reminds them about what happens when God's people abide to the end. The first thing he tells them is that they have hope for the future. Again, looking back at verses uh, 24 and 25 of 1 John 2. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, and what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will, then, excuse me, from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. When we abide in our Savior, we have the promise of eternal life, He says. And you think, okay, wait a minute. It sounds an awful lot like what you're saying is eternal life and going to heaven is my reward for abiding. Is that what John is saying? That is not what John is saying. He is saying that our salvation is not a reward for our abiding, but our abiding in Christ is evidence of God's genuine faith working in us. As we continue to believe the gospel and we pursue growing in Christ likeness, he says we have the promise of eternal life. And he puts it another way in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. An additional hope that we have for the future is that when Jesus comes back, we have confidence. We don't have to shrink back in fear and shame and guilt because we know that we are His and He's come back for us. He's come to bring us into His new heaven and new earth. And so that day of His return is a day of joy and celebration for us, not a day of dread or fear or guilt or shame. As we abide in our Lord Jesus Christ, there is hope for the future. But it's not just hope for the future. Remember Jesus' words from John 15 that we read earlier in our service. We have hope now. We have hope today. For today. 
What did Jesus say? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart, for apart from me you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Abide in me. And remember Paul's words from Philippians 1. I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, all of these things are true of those who genuinely believe the gospel and abide in Jesus until the end. And having this hope now, as we live our lives today, is so incredibly important for us. We may not face the kind of persecution and trials that Polycarp and many of God's people have gone through throughout church history and who are enduring even today. But we still have challenges. We still have difficult trials in our lives. We do and we will. We have the usual trials, the usual discouragements, things like health issues and family disruptions and relational problems. We have our own struggles with our sin. Just simply living in a world that has been impacted by the fall and and dealing with the effects of that fall in our lives. These are all trials that we have to go through all the time. And perhaps also you are looking down the horizon and seeing other trials that might be looming. Losing your job because of whether you're vaccinated or not. Being persecuted because of our biblical convictions about things like sexuality and identity and the sanctity of all of human life. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, in the midst of all of the challenges, of all the trials of our life, we must remember what John told the church in Ephesus in the first century. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. Abide in Jesus. And now, little children, abide in Him. Let's pray together. Father, so often the circumstances of our lives consume our thoughts and fill our hearts with stress and anxiety. We confess that to you. We confess it to you as we struggle often to take our eyes off of you. But I pray, Father, that John's words would echo in our ears even this week to come. That you would give us the strength that we need to abide in our Savior. Even as we remember the gospel of your grace and mercy to us in Jesus Christ. Those sweet moments when we first believed. Help us to cling to that gospel truth. 
And we pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit to be doing a mighty work in our hearts and our minds and our actions and our words and every aspect of who we are, that you would be conforming and shaping and molding us more and more into the image of our Savior. Give us the strength we need to fight and to lean against our sin, to repent of it, to turn away from it, and to turn once again to you. And now as we come to this table, strengthen us through the work of the Spirit for that same purpose. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.